Welcome to the Prince John Podcast. Today we're going to start a new series called The Gospel. I'm really excited about this. And in this episode, we're going to discuss about freedom from the law and forgiven. In this episode, especially, we're going to discuss about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the kind of implications that has in his life. What is a covenant? A covenant is a contract or a deal between two parties. Moses penned a contract or the Old Covenant. This was one of the most significant contracts or covenant which was ratified in the Old Testament. It had certain conditions and stipulations and it was ratified when Moses came down from the mountain and sprinkled animal blood over the scroll and over the people. And with that shedding of the blood, the covenant was ratified and Israel was able to relate with God. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 24, verse 6 to 8. Now, the Old Testament covenant, which is the Old Covenant, had so many regulations and demands that people continuously failed at it. This list of blessings and curses are mentioned in Deuteronomy 28, and altogether there are about 613 of these. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, we see people were blessed when they kept the law, and they were punished when they failed to obey the law. God kept his part of the bargain always, but the people were not able to follow it. You can hear God's word verdict in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, There is none righteous, not even one. So that means everyone who tried to do the law they all failed. And they never reached God's standards. Then came a new covenant which was not based on animal blood like it was for the old covenant, but it was through the precious blood of Jesus. There were Old Testament prophecies looking forward to this glorious covenant. And you can read about this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34, which is also mentioned in Hebrews 8, verse 8 to 9, where the author is putting forward some great truths about this covenant. Let's read Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8 to 9. He says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. It says about a new covenant. And it also mentions that it is not like the Old Covenant. So the author of Hebrews is saying that the problem of the Old Covenant was that even if people messed up, there were no provisions for God to help them. So in other words, the problem of the Old Covenant was a lack of security. So in even in times when people messed up, there were no way, there was no way to help them out of it. But in the new covenant, God, out of his love, made provisions in such a way that even if people messed up 
And if they were in covenant, they would be helped, would be cared for, would be loved. And that's what this new covenant is about. It has a foundation in love. We read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, more about this new covenant. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Now think about this. The Old Covenant was based on a Levite priesthood. That means the sons of the Levite tribe were able to become priests. But then we know that Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant. And what happens here? We see that Jesus was never of the tribe of Levi, but he was of the tribe of Judah. Why did God have to take all the trouble to send Jesus from the tribe of Judah rather than the tribe of Levi? This is because God wants to make a clear distinction between the old and the new. He wants to tell us loud and clear that the new covenant is based on a new priesthood. When we read Hebrews chapter 9 verse 16 to 17, we hear, For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. So this clearly says that when the people with whom the covenant is made, if they are alive, the covenant is not in force. So there must be a necessity of the death of the one who made it. So when did the new covenant begin? The new covenant began, according to the writer of Hebrews, at the death of Jesus at the cross of Calvary. Because it was necessary that the person with whom the covenant was made, which was Jesus, should die. Why is this significant? It's because a lot of people still say that the life of Jesus, written in Matthew, Mark, and Ju Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's basically the life of a new covenant Christian. It is not. In Galatians chapter four, verse four to five, it says, "But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman." Now read the next part: "Born under the law." Okay, so that He might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. What does it say? Jesus was born under the law. So his life, which is seen in Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's basically a life of the old covenant. Does that mean that the healings, does that mean all those raising of the dead was not a new covenant thing, was part of the old covenant? Yes, it was part of the old covenant. So that means if the old covenant was able to do that, the new covenant should be able to do much more. But a lot of people is trying to preach that Jesus was living a life of the new covenant. And basically they are trying to push the law or performance-based system into the life of believers. 
basically they're trying to say that you should do this you should do that if you don't do this you will be punished if you don't do this you this will happen so basically a performance based system which was the system of the old covenant is being pushed here that was what the mosaic covenant or the old covenant was about it was about your performance and they are preaching basically Moses 2.0. A lot of people talk about this in ignorance, that they don't understand what they have received as part of the new covenant. So you see here that Jesus' life, which is portrayed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, was not a life of the new covenant. It was an old covenant life perfected, showing how to live a life in the old covenant and he was also trying to show that you cannot keep the law so the, this was the problem jesus had with the pharisees the pharisees they tried to keep the law good but the problem was that they were not able to keep the law but they watered down the law in such a way that they made a weak version of it and they followed that and they were so prideful that they kept the law. In fact, they never were able to keep the law. Jesus was raising the standards of the old covenant. You can see this in Matthew chapter 5 verse 27 to 32 where he talks about you shall not commit adultery. So first of all, he was he spoke about the law. He spoke the Old Testament law which said you shall not commit adultery. Then he said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he said, he was saying that, okay, you have heard this commandment and you might be thinking it's pretty easy to do that, right? But I say to you, even if you have looked at someone with adultery, or lust in your heart, have you have committed adultery with her in your heart. So he keeps on saying, if your right hand makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it out from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. But then you might say, oh no, that's not what Jesus meant. He did not really mean that. But that's what's written. See what we're doing here. We're doing exactly what the Pharisees did. We're watering down the law and we are trying to follow a weak version of it. So you might ask, so Brother Prince, are you saying that we should keep the law? No, that's exactly the opposite of what I was trying to say. I'm trying to say here is that if you try to keep the law, you won't be able to. So Jesus was trying to show that you cannot keep the law. What he was trying to do was to get us to a point where we would say, God, I just cannot do keep the law. That's where God wanted to get you to. One more point here. In Mark chapter 10, we read about the rich young ruler. In verse 17, this guy, he is rich, he is young, 
and he has been living perfect according to him. So he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. This guy was prepared. He knew that Jesus would say these things. And he was coming to Jesus on the basis of his performance, on the basis of what he had done. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, because he knew this guy was trying to do. But then he said, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So despite doing everything perfectly, Jesus was still able to find fault in him. The reason is that Jesus' intention was never for him to keep the law completely because he knew that he wouldn't be able to keep the law. But at these words, that's what I'm reading here, but at these words he was saddened and he went of a grieving for he was one who owned much property. Now look at this conversation right after that. So the disciples gather and say, who can be saved? They were really astonished about it because it were the rich people who were able to afford some of these sacrifices and who were able to do these really well. And now the rich young man who was able to do these sacrifices and everything, plus he had a very perfect life, which the disciples couldn't boast of. And right after that, now they're like, who can be saved? That means no one can be saved, right? Now listen to Jesus' response. Instead of saying, yes, that those are the rules. You have to play by the rules, buddy. Don't you know the old covenant? Until you do everything perfectly, you will not be able to enter heaven. It's not what Jesus said. Instead, Jesus said, with people it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So Jesus was making a point clear that if you try to follow the law on your own, you're not able to do it. Self-righteousness will not help you. On the other hand, if you look to me, look to Jesus, that's when you will be made righteous again. With God, everything is possible. He gives an introduction to his new covenant message in John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you cannot do anything. God wants the transformation to happen inside out. A lot of time when we say that the law is not applicable, people get a little bit nervous. They start thinking that, okay, this guy is making up an excuse to sin. That's the opposite of what we are trying to say. The thing which is emphasized over here is that you will not sin if you are changed inside out. That means your affinity or your attraction towards sin is no more in the inside, in the spirit, and it comes out to the outside because when you renew your mind to it, you will not want to sin anymore because you are changed from the inside. 
On the other hand, if you're not changed on the inside, and if you're trying to set up some rules over and over again, since in the spirit you are not a changed person, you will still find ways to do it. The law does not help you to stop sinning. Maybe it might give a a kind of an appearance of not sinning, but your true motives are exposed when the law is taken away. A few years ago, um, in India, there was this breaking news that hereafter the government has removed the law that made adultery illegal. That means it became legal from that day onwards. So let's say, hypothetically, I actually saw the news and I'm like, oh my God, this is terrible news because now I don't know. There's no law and I wish there was a law because I would be able to be faithful to my wife. Now, since the law is not there, I don't know. You see where the problem is. You know that a person who loves his wife wouldn't talk like that. So this is what is the main point which is being made here. A lot of people say that by emphasizing on grace, we are undermining the fruit which should be seen in a Christian's life. On the contrary, by emphasizing on grace and what has happened to you in Christ Jesus, we are not undermining, but we are underlining the fact that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are holy. You are sanctified. You are anointed. Everything in Christ Jesus. You are complete in Him. And by doing so, by understanding and renewing your mind to that fact which has already happened to you, you will start acting like that. It doesn't mean when I use the word acting, it's not like you are acting something which is not true. Whether you know it or not, it is a fact about you. The plan of God is to be the vine, which is the stem, and you, and which is the root, and we are the branches, and we abide in him, and he in us, and we bear much fruit. For apart from me, you cannot do anything, says the Lord. What is the new covenant message? The new covenant message can be summarized into four points, which is we are dead to the law. So this is written in Romans chapter 7 verse 4, point number 2. Free from the law and not under the law. You can find this in Galatians chapter 5 verse 18, point number 3. Not supervised by the law. Romans chapter 7 verse 6. Fourth point, Christ is the end of the law. This is written in Romans chapter 10 verse The message that we are dead to the law, free from the law, not under the law, not supervised by the law, and Christ is the end of the law, is being shouted from heaven. And our response is that, well, this refers to the ceremonial law, but the moral laws we have to keep. We have to keep the Ten Commandments. But it doesn't give any distinction that these are the ceremonial laws and you have to keep the moral laws, but it says Christ is the end of the law. It just says that and it includes the ceremonial laws and the moral laws altogether. Now we read in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 to 3. 
For the law possessing a shadow of the things, good things that are to come, not the form of things itself, is never able year by year by means of the same sacrifices which they offer without interruption to make perfect those who draw near. For otherwise, they would not they would they not have ceased to be offered because the ones who worship having been purified once and for all would no longer have conscious of sins. But in them there is a reminder of sins year by year. So what is the point the author of Hebrews is trying to make? He is saying that if the perfect sacrifice ever existed and if it was offered, that means we would have been purified once and for all. Right? We would have been purified once and for all. But in the old covenant, there was no such amazingly pure, perfect sacrifice. We did not have such a sacrifice. But wait a minute. In the new covenant, Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. And that means he has purified us once and for all. What does that mean? That means your past, present, future sins... Everything has been taken care of once and for all. Jesus does not have to die for you again. When Jesus died, all of our sins were forgiven, past, present, and future sins. But you might say, no, 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 I'm forgiven up until salvation, and now it's up to me to ask for forgiveness. There are people who believe that, that we should remember each and every sin that we have done, and we should confess it that day or else we will be in trouble. It is certainly religious. It has an appearance of something really good, but it's not Jesus. It's not the new covenant. Let me ask you, we might think that we are forgiven up unto salvation and that after that it's all up to us. So how many sins have we done in our life? How many sins have we asked forgiveness for? Let's take about today. How many sins do you think that you have done? There are sins which you are aware of. There are sins you are unaware of. There are even sins of omission. That means you have sinned and if you forget to, to ask for forgiveness, that means you will not enter heaven, is it? See, you see where it gets a little bit messy there, right? Our sins were in the future when Christ died for our sins 2,000 years ago. Everything was in the future. He forgave our sins, even in the future as well. You don't have to do all those gymnastics asking God to forgive me. You just have to receive the forgiveness of Jesus which has already been available to you. Your sins were forgiven on the cross and everything was forgiven. You did not have to keep asking for forgiveness over and over and over again to God who's already forgiven you. Now, like the this point being made in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, where Paul talks about a thief and who was who used to steal. And what is Paul's response to the thief? He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Paul is not saying that, okay, you you need to ask for forgiveness to God over and over again, and once you feel that you have forgiveness received, that's when you are forgiven. But he's saying, he who steals must steal no longer. 
right? That means he's saying, change your direction. Change the direction of your life because that's not who you are really inside. In the spirit, you are one with the spirit of the Lord according to 1 Corinthians 6 verse 17 and you are in Christ. Imagine a Jewish man who would walk into the temple, right? Every year he would walk into the temple and while he comes back, hypothetically, let's say there is an interviewer stands there and asks, excuse me, sir, I noticed that you were very broken when you walked in. You were really sad and completely perplexed. But when you got back outside, you have a spring in your step full of joy. What happened? Did you mention each sin of yours? He would say, no. Did God tell you that he would do something for you? No. Then why? Every person, every person in the Old Covenant is going to say, that is, by the blood of bulls and goats, I am forgiven. Every sin that he did for the last one year, on the Day of Atonement, it was going to be forgiven. Every sin. He didn't have to mention every sin that he had committed. Similarly, the Bible says that Jesus does not have to go on the cross again. He does not have to do that. Jesus died for your sin once and for all. We have been perfected forever. Our future sins, our past sins, and our present sins have been forgiven. And also, on top of it, we have been sanctified. We have been perfected. You can see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. I believe this is a perfect verse that would be a final nail on the coffin for people who have said that we are not perfect and who say that our future sins are not forgiven and those who say that we are not sanctified. Here it says, by one offering, which is that offering of Jesus Christ at the cross, he has perfected for all time. That means you and I are perfected in Christ Jesus for all time. That means there is not a time which is left where we are not perfected for all time. Those who are sanctified. Sanctified means those who have been set apart. You and I have been set apart. Now you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, it says, Such were some of you. You were washed, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our Lord. That means you and I have been sanctified. We have been sanctified. It's not that we are progressively sanct- being sanctified into something and into the image of Jesus. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Why are we sanctified? Because we are in Christ Jesus. For by one offering, he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We are perfect forever. And God sees that we are sanctified. sanctified. We are justified. We are glorified. We are also crucified with him. We were buried with him. And we are raised up. We have been raised up with Christ Jesus at 
the right hand of God. We are seated with him at the right hand of God. But we might say, oh, I don't, we have to come near to God. We have to get, we're out of fellowship right now. But that's not what the Bible says. It says that you are one with him in the spirit. You cannot get closer than this. So the lack of closeness, which you feel is in your mind. But when you realize that you are as close as you can be, you're one with him in the spirit. That is when you can live out that life of unity in Christ Jesus. You can live it out into the natural and manifest as sons of God and daughters of God in Christ Jesus. So the obvious question here is what about 1 John 1 verse 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the obvious question here is, shouldn't I confess my sin every second so that I will be forgiven? Now we should understand that 1 John chapter 1 was addressed to unbelievers. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 8, it says that if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it talks about people who say that they don't have any sin. And in 1 John 1 verse 10, it says that if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. These are people who say they have never sinned. So obviously they are not the believers because the believers know that they had sinned, they repent from their sin, and they believe in God for God to be their righteousness. In Christ Jesus, you all your sins are forgiven, your past, present, and future sins, and you have a high priest in heaven who is resting. You see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. Every high priest, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, after having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, see this again, it comes here. He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. What does it say? In the Old Testament, when the high priest did his duties, he was not supposed to sit, but rather he was going to stand and perform his duties. He was very busy. Picture of him standing, according to the author of Hebrews, is is, is a picture of him having a lot of work to do. But our high priest, Jesus Christ, offered for all time one sacrifice for all sins. And he sat at the right hand of God. So that means that he is sitting. His work is all done. He said, it is finished. The question we should ask is, are you seated with Jesus saying it is finished? Or are you trying to get it right? Are you trying to make things right on top of what Jesus did? You're not in the process of being forgiven, but rather you are forgiven. We will not be judged for our sins because Jesus was punished for our sins. He said this in John chapter 3 verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He's talking about Jesus, who he believes in him, Jesus. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So this is not 
a license to sin. In fact, the grace message is never a license to sin. It empowers you to live holy. Remember what Jesus said to the woman who was caught in adultery. He said, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. So first it was, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Grace empowers you to live a holy life. Think about this. The law empowers you to sin. It increases the transgressions and it increases the sin in in the person. Paul says that I would not have known sin if the law was not given. But the law took that opportunity to evoke every sort of covetousness in him when he when he heard the law. This is mentioned in Romans chapter 7 when he said, when he heard the law, you shall not covet. So what happened is when he heard the law, that evoked, that took the opportunity to evoke every sort of covetousness in him. Grace empowers you to live a holy life. If you are conscious about who you are in Christ Jesus, if you're conscious that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, if you are conscious that your past, your present, and your future sins have been forgiven, if you are conscious that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, if you are conscious that you are anointed in Christ Jesus, if you are conscious that you are justified in Christ Jesus, if you are conscious that you have been raised with Him in Christ Jesus. And if that is the case, you will not go out of your character to keep on sinning. If you keep preaching the law and a law-based message all the time, what happens creates more sin. Because imagine this, let's say you have a room full of trash and you have a room which is spotless clean. And then you are out of time. Someone gives you a trash. You have to throw it somewhere. Are you going to throw it in the clean room or are you going to throw it in the trashy room? I can bet you're going to throw it in the trashy room. Why? Because it's already full of trash. One more doesn't hurt. This is what happens to believers who think they are sinners saved by grace. They identify themselves as sinners. They identify themselves, oh, I have this sinful nature. And they say, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And when they say that, and when the opportunity to sin comes, they're like, okay, one more sin. What, what harm does it do? I'll just add it to the pile. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says that, His divine power has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. Now, it talks about certain virtues, certain virtues, self-control, knowledge, brotherly kindness, love in 2 Peter chapter 1. Then he says, And he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten, what does it say, his purification from his former sins. Basically, Peter is saying that he who lacks these qualities, if you do not see fruits in the life of a person, that's because he has forgotten his purification from his former sins. It's because you are identifying yourself as a sinner. That's the reason why you are not showing the qualities of someone who's righteous in Christ Jesus.
Do you see what's happened here? Do you say that the old covenant was a tutor to the new covenant? The purpose of the old covenant was not so that we could keep on doing it perfectly and we would say, oh, I've done it perfectly. Because Jesus came, he did the law perfectly. He fulfilled the law and he showed the Pharisees who claimed to be fulfilling that they were not even close. He in fact showed that you can never keep the law. You are one with him. That means in the spirit you are one with him. That means you are not recognizable in the spirit. That means that's how much your unity is in the spirit. You are of the divine nature. You are born of the divine seed. That's why it says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17, whoever is a new creation Therefore, the old has passed away, the new has come. We don't have to keep holding on to the old. You have been purified once and for all. You have been perfected once and for all. We saw that we have been sanctified. We saw that we have a high priest who sat having finished everything. You don't have to keep running from place to place and conferences to conferences hoping that they will get something new, that someone would lay their hands on them. Someone would give them a new anointing. But Jesus says, like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So that means you do not have to run from kneeling down before uh, people and saying, oh, bless me, or touch me, or running, pushing people away, and trampling on top of them, trying to be the first one. I'm not trying to undermine that. Why do you need something inexpensive compared to the anointing which is in Christ Jesus? Because that is the anointing that you have received in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not a uh, a study on anointing, so I'm not going to go deeper into that. But understand, live out your righteousness. Live out your righteousness. It says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And in your spirit, it's, it is one with the Spirit of the Lord. And it's about your spirit unified with the Holy Spirit. And that is the fruit that should come. We should start agreeing with Jesus that it is finished. He said it is finished. Just agree with Him that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Agree with Jesus that you are forgiven once and for all. Agree with Jesus yet you've been perfected in Christ Jesus agree that you're made complete in him 